Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast, your source for policy rants and raves from Tech Freedom, your Washington, D.C. advocate for the freedom to tinker and innovate. On today's show, cybersecurity and the Internet of Things. 2015 was the year of the hack, with major cyber attacks on Sony, federal agencies, healthcare providers really dominating the news cycle in many respects. And as more and more of our devices get connected to the internet, the problem becomes more acute. Joining me in our DC studio to discuss this is Shane Tews. She's a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute's Center for Internet Communications and Technology Policy, where she primarily focuses on cybersecurity and internet governance issues. You could check out her work at techpolicydaily.com. Shane, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Evan. I'm so excited. I've so enjoyed the podcast. Well, we were happy to have you. So at this year's uh, Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, the hot topic really was connected cars, uh, connected household products. Explain to our listeners, what is the Internet of Things? So the Internet of Things is really just the connection to the devices. It's it's an IP base. Think about the numbers, the zeros and ones, you know, that, that say that... Uh, basically they're like small children saying I'm here, I'm here, I'm here a lot. (laughs) So depending on what they're using to broadcast, whether it's, you know, a Bluetooth or, you know, Wi-Fi capability, they're looking for something to connect to and then share information off that device. So what types of devices are we going to see being connected to the internet that maybe wouldn't be things people would think need to be connected to the internet? So one of the great things that we've been hearing because it's also been auto month is cars. We're seeing cars connected. I think we've got several issues that are going to come up there. Um, so you you're, you may have a point where if you're a uh, iPhone user versus an Android user, you may choose one model of car over another because wow. they may do specifications or do partnerships around that. There's obviously security issues as we saw with the G-Pack in Wired Magazine that, that came up around that. But the, also the ability to have this seamless existence that you walk from your car to your house to your office and all the data that is personal to you and how you have it managed walks with you with your smartphone throughout all those different locations thanks to the Internet of Things. And something as mundane as a coffee maker might soon be connected to the Internet. That's it's always <laughs> the question. The, one, the Samsung uh, refrigerator is a classic example. It has um, cameras in it which that did kind of freak me out i was like cameras in my but i'm like could i i guess the whole idea that a list is too complicated so you should be able to look at what's inside your refrigerator while you're at whole foods to know if you need milk wow but i did have a colleague who suggested why don't we take the same technology that we use in mini bars you know when you lift anything in a mini bar it knows that it's depleted you could do that and you could do maybe they could sense the weight of something how many ounces of milk is left of course, that right. means you'd have to have a really well-organized refrigerator. I bet Barron's would be fabulous. <laughs> Barron being the uh, fearless leader of Tech Freedom, who is a frequent guest on the podcast. So the possibilities really are endless. We're looking at a situation where almost everything in our house could be connected to the Internet. And while the possibilities are obviously very exciting, um, we have to ask ourselves, is the network, or are the networks we have now, the Internet capacity we have, is this going to be able to sustain so many devices yeah, absolutely. The challenge there is spectrum, making sure that we have enough spectrum available for that, um, as well as white spaces, uh, how we manage information, which is why you're seeing things other than just Wi-Fi connecting. You're seeing Bluetooth. There are other types of technology that is very short range and, and how they connect. Uh, even like think about contactless payment. So when you walk up to um, an Apple Pay or a Samsung Pay, you are going very near field communication. You don't need that to be able to read the device all the way across the room. Ideally, you don't 
don't want it to be able to read right. it from a very far distance. You want it to be as close as possible so they can make that connection, which is another great element of inter- Internet of Things. Right. So we're talking about connections in a variety of ways. You've got Wi-Fi connection. You've got your cell phone connection, which uses Spectrum, which is a scarce resource. Um, so there's with exploding demand, we're going to have to find ways to free up more Spectrum. And then you've got this near-field connections like Bluetooth, where it only works in a really uh, short distance. And obviously, if we're going to have all of these devices connected to the internet, that's going to pose a cybersecurity challenge, right? So it's not now just my PC and my cell phone that I have to worry about in my cloud. I've also got to worry about my refrigerator and my coffee maker. So what is being done, given that I mentioned that 2015 was such a the year of the hack and so many hacks happened and they were really devastating to a lot of companies and agencies, what's being done to kind of head this off? Well, right now we're living in a world of what people are calling creepy convenience, which means we're just being permissive about it. We're allowing it to happen. There was a report that came out this week about uh, cameras, and they wanted to really make their point. So they showed how many uh, close circuit cameras are actually that you can find sleeping babies. Which there's nothing wrong with watching a sleeping child, but it's a little that's a little challenging to think that that's it's that easy. So right. what we're starting to see is the idea of security by design that people are putting more design into their products. So you may choose not to use the security, but the security is there if you want to use it. So if I want to uh, password protect my Nest camera, which is in my house, or you know, in anything of, of that nature, that there's automatically a security layer into that technology. We're seeing much more of that. So the manufacturers are, what they're doing is they're building security into their products, but this is also an issue that regulators are dealing with, that lawmakers are dealing with. What's the government doing to address well, cybersecurity? Uh, they're looking at the question or looking at the challenge, which is fine. That's what they're allowed to do. But then you also don't want them to be prescriptive in the answer. And so we're seeing the Federal Trade Commission is doing some of that right now. And, and ideally, you want to say, we know that there is a challenge. We would like to maybe be prescriptive about the outcome being that more security you know, in the network or in the, in the system. What you don't want them choosing is a specific way to do it or a specific technology that they think it gets it accomplished. So it's better if, so the government can set a goal. They can say something like, we need to be more secure. But if they're actually getting involved in the design of the security, you say that's a bad idea. What could be some of the ramifications of the FTC, for example, being too prescriptive? The, especially when it comes to technology, you we deal with things in what are like best current effort. So the whole idea, like the internet does not run on, on standards. The internet runs on the best current effort of, let's say I create something and everybody says, great, Shane did something smart. Let's all use that until somebody else comes along and they say, Evan just did something smarter. We it's all quickly migrate to that. It's your choice, but you aren't obligated to it, nor do you have to go back to a large group of people and try to either vote or re-regulate into what that technology is capable of doing. It's one of those things that has happened in the background and we all adopt it and we don't understand a lot of how that works. Certain things do need to be standardized if you want large adoption. So there is certainly an area for uh, standards in that area. But when it comes to the government, you don't want them to choose winners and losers, nor do you want them to hard bake into any of their regulations a specific technology because we're going to blow right past that. And that's just going to cause problems for years to come. We see it in funny ways like um, in the government area, you see things called cat cards, you know, these, these permissive cards that allow you in and out of, of areas. There's certainly smarter ways to do that, but somewhere along the way, somebody wrote in a regulation that the standards of how that should be because there was somebody selling that card who wanted that. There's, uh, It's hard to get those things out once they're in. So we try to learn that lesson and suggest that we look at outcome-driven responses from the government, but not specific tech mandates. 
The idea being that if the government starts debating which technology is the best, by the time they finish debating that technology, the cybersecurity problem might have evolved to make that conversation irrelevant. Pretty quickly, yeah. And uh, so it's the right at the end of 2015, we had a big budget that passed. And a lot of times in these budgets, things get thrown in there that have nothing to do with necessarily funding the government. But because the budget has to pass, people want to throw things in there. And a lot of those things are very controversial. And one of those things was the... Cyber Information Sharing Act, CISA, which got renamed to the Cybersecurity Act. What did that bill do? So one of the challenges with cyber is the more informed you are, the better you can respond. So the biggest challenge for cyber is uh, first knowing that you have something going on. It's a malware attack. You have some bug in your system. There's some code that somebody has put in that is potentially going to cause harm. And then once you realize that, seeing how quickly you can go to time to remedy. The idea, though, is that the more information we can share on a code level, not necessarily people conflated this with privacy. So I want to separate those out. This is not a privacy issue. This is a what is the malware code? And if I share that with others, people can then respond and patch their systems quicker or or look to see if they have that issue in their system. Um, So. The the challenge around CISA was that the privacy people really came down on this and said that they're going to share a lot more information than just the code. Which right, so is, it's, not, it's not just going to be the hacking code that my personal information that I share with a company is going to get roped into that. That it, was the concern from privacy advocates. Exactly. So the idea was they didn't put the parameters tight enough about exactly what should be shared because they're not completely clear on what needs to be shared. So they thought you're going to have corporations just throw the kitchen sink at them and then along with that could be a lot of information that is not valued for the end result of cybersecurity but could cause challenges of having more information out there from a privacy perspective and do what do you think of those concerns do you think that they were overblown or was is this a really a problematic piece of legislation uh, they there certainly could be some tightening up of the language i think is going to is but i think that the the aspirational point of what they were trying to do with CISA is right, but now they've taken it and it needs to go to DHS. And so now the proof is, can DHS actually show in a quantifiable way that they are helping with cybersecurity and managing that process and, and getting the information out there? An example I had a colleague use this morning was he's like, it could be like the weather service. We should be using you know, collected data that doesn't necessarily just have to come from NOAA, but NOAA can collect it to let me know that there is an earthquake coming, that there is a typhoon coming. There's a, you know, there's a public good to generating this information and finding a way to share it across, you know, many people as well as many industries. We don't, haven't figured that out completely in cyber, but it's a, it's an interesting model to take a look at from that perspective. And you mentioned Department of Homeland Security. One of the concerns from privacy advocates is that while some federal agencies like the Department of Homeland Security might be well-equipped to deal with an onslaught of new information that CISA is motivating companies to share, but part of CISA, is a, there was a provision in there that said that DHS could share that information with other federal agencies, and not all federal agencies have the same level of security. So is there a real concern there that while DHS might be able to handle your information and not, and not have it be the victim of an attack, that other federal agencies won't be as careful? Absolutely. I think the one thing we have learned through the OPM hack, for example, is that what people think of as secured networks has a, a very wide berth, and in most cases, they're not secured at and all. just so the listeners know, the OPM hack, that's the Office of Personnel Management, essentially information on every single federal employee, over 20 million people, and it was hacked, and presumably by Chinese hackers? That's that's the, the rumor. <laughs> right. um, yeah. I mean, it includes... Uh, 
there were forensics in there. So you had fingerprinting, you know, I don't think they had retinal scans, but they had everything almost up to that as well as lots of personal information on people. Uh, they had person, depending on who it was, they had personal habits, things that were definitely interesting to people that like to spy on each other. Right. And uh, another one of the concerns with CISA is that it was maybe unnecessary. So let's talk about what the cyber information sharing world looked like before this bill. A lot of critics of the bill said companies have every incentive in the world to try to help each other prevent cyber attacks. And they have an incentive to their customers because they know that if customers see headlines like Sony gets hacked, they're going to be less likely to share their information with Sony. So was there a need for this bill in your view if people were already doing some of this stuff on their own? So I actually would challenge that premise. I don't think that they have incentive to share. If anything, they don't know what their legal liability is. So they tend not to share unless obligated. Ah. One of the reasons why we started to learn about hacks, there's two things. One is that they passed uh, legislation in California several years ago. So it, and, and almost all of our credit cards have a nexus back to California. So when you get a privacy notice, it has nothing to do at a federal level. It really means that you are just somehow it, it got triggered by something that happened thanks to the California legislation. And the, um, the other piece is the, there's lack of indemnification. So people don't share unless they think they're absolutely supposed to. So the SEC came out with guidance about four or five years ago saying if you think you've had an issue, you should say something. And it was about that vague. So you find that, you know, depending on the corporation, depending on how their general counsel feels when they put in their 10K or if they have to do a, a notification, they'll end up telling you things that may, maybe was a good idea or not. JP Morgan got engaged. That's how we found out that JP Morgan was hacked. They used a third-party vendor for um, it, uh, for a marathon. And so they disclosed that in an SEC filing, and that's how everyone found out that they had had a breach. So you're, you're saying that companies actually don't have the incentive before this legislation because they would be worried about being sued. But what about the argument that if a company does mishandle my private information in a cyber sharing situation, maybe I should have the right to sue them. Why is it so important that they have legal immunity? So uh, just so we can clear, we're kind of conflating two issues here. Okay. So you have actual cybersecurity and what you can do to like tap down your networks. And then you have the, the actual data. So they refer to that as data at rest versus data in transit. So the data at rest, you'd like to be in the safe, secure environment. And that's what people sometimes are hacking is they're trying to just get these big files like the OPM hack. Yeah, the things, other, on a, things that sit on a hard drive, not things that are being emailed. Yes. Right. And the other way is to actually capture it as it's going across the transom. So you're capturing it in, in movement. And that's another way to to capture information. Right. Ideally, what the incentives are going to come probably out of a market-based advantage that would be insurance. So the challenge has been with cyber insurance, getting the actuarial tables. So you haven't seen a huge market yet because they're trying to figure out how much risk do they have? How much should I be insuring that risk so I can do the risk transfer from, you know, the company to the insurance company if needed, and what is the price for that? We're still seeing a developing market on that. Larger organizations are doing it. One of the good news is about <laughs> bad. Uh, the good news about that is that your the insurance companies now have incentive to go back in and show companies best practices. They can show them their vulnerabilities, right. and they're doing that in a 
private setting that is not engaging a lot of other entities, which is one of the challenges with sharing information with DHS, as you pointed out at the very beginning of this question, is so I'm sharing information with DHS. What are they doing with that? Who else are they sharing it with? And there's always that cross-functional question, which is where the privacy people had a concern is, I share cyber information with DHS, but somehow I end up in front of the FBI or the yeah, SEC or, exactly. you know, there's, so that's where the, the conflation comes in is, you know, what is it I should be sharing? Why am I sharing it? And who gets to see it? Right. So if 2015 was the year of the hack, what's 2016 going to be? So everyone's concerned that 2015 was just a taste testing. They were just looking at this to see what they could get, how fast they could get it, what the market would and when bear. when you say they, you mean you know, foreign um, governments, cyber criminals, anyone with a hacking all capability? Of, all of the above, yeah. Right. So, um, so an example of like a very low bar, you know, this group called Talk Talk, which is out of England, they're a, a mobile carrier. The person who hacked, the group that hacked them said it was so easy to do it, it was almost impossible not to. So there you have an, a situation where maybe if they had felt like they had some obligation to anyone, um, they should almost get sued, you know, from a consumer perspective for making it so easy. And they didn't just get, I mean, they got everything. They got every piece of record they could um, on all those other people that were clients for Talk Talk. Then you have, um, you have, there's just, there's a lot of money in this market. So people hack for varying reasons. They do it for espionage reasons. They do it for, um, you know, just because you have, you know, it used to be script kitties. You don't see as many people do that. You, um, it's sellable information and we're, and people don't completely understand that because we do, you know, I, I probably have had new six new credit cards this year. Somebody, wow. you know, there's always somebody and you never know if it's a physical transfer. Did they copy it when I was at a restaurant or did they, you know, figure it out from something else? And then they sell these online. And the uh, question is to how much then can they get for that? The, the interesting thing that came out of Talk Talk is that they were watching to see as that information was sold, they were able to watch the actual, the you know, the, the files. And they found that they were bringing in a lower price point than what was expected because the market is so flooded right now with information that's available off of these hacks. Wow. So that goes to the point of like they're taste testing. They're seeing what's valued, what isn't, what's worth their time. And then it's a question of why do they want to get in the systems. But now that they've realized that the barrier to entry in a lot of corporations is pretty low, you're going to have that challenge of, do, you know, do they feel the need to go in? And a lot of times that are retrofitting old legacy systems, which are not easy, which is a lot of hanging on uh, equipment versus going in, tearing it all out and buying a state of the art system that would be a much higher bar for people to get around. Well, if 2015 was uh, just an appetizer, uh, listeners will have to look out for 2016. Make sure to be as secure as possible. You know, change your passwords every once in a while. Um, you can find some tips on how to mitigate the cyber threat uh, if you read Shane's work at uh, techpolicydaily.com. That's it for today's show. Uh, my guest has been Shane Tews, a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute's Center for Internet Communications and Technology Policy, where she focuses on cybersecurity and internet governance issues. Shane, thank you for joining me. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Follow us on Twitter at TechFreedom or on Facebook.com slash TechFreedom and find this podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan, nonprofit, tax exempt think tank based in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work in tech policy and for more episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.